Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Torah Studies. The way we do this each week, as you know, is I am go we're going to start off with everybody muted, but don't worry, at any time you can unmute yourself, jump in, or ask a question in the chat box, and it is going to be an opportunity for us to party. So tonight, as you can see, oh, hey, Amy, good to see you. Um, we have a special guest teacher, Riva. There you go. Hey, Riva, say hi. Okay, so tonight we read about a really amazing story, the story of Yaakov and Esau, the story of Jacob and Esau. Now, this is one of the most, oh, I don't know, it's like, it's, it's way up there in Torah lore of interesting, puzzling, perplexing, complicated, mysterious controversial stories. It's way up there. And um, what I'm referring to is, should we see you? What I'm, refer there you go. what I'm referring to is, of course, the stealing of the blessings. Now, I know I use the word stealing, and I know you could frame it any sort of way. It's, you know, whatever um, description you use is going to be how you frame it. So you can call it how Jacob stole the blessings. You can refer to it as a, um, Jacob taking the blessings, or he had bought the blessings before with some lentil soup. There are different ways to frame it. Either way, what's clear in the narrative is that the father, Isaac, is wishing to give a blessing to his son, Esau, the older son. And who swoops in? None other than Jacob. Now, if you're, if you're part of our J, current JLI course, Secrets of the Bible, we've discussed this the last two lessons we've explored in various ways this story of the borrowing, no, the taking of the blessings um, of Jacob uh, that Jacob took. We're not going to um, repeat or, or cover the themes that we did in that course. Tonight we have a very specific objective. We're going to look at the language of the blessing. How, how the, why Jacob acted so surreptitiously? Why did he act in such a sneaky fashion? Why did his mother put him up to it? That will have to leave for other conversations. Tonight, we look at the blessing itself. As Jacob is standing there, wearing the clothes of his brother Esau and the hairy goatskins, as he's standing there and his father gives him the blessing. So what's the blessing? What actually is the blessing saying? And what powerful messages might the blessing hold for us tonight? I have renamed the class. I'm not sure what Torah studies named it. I'm calling it the art of a blessing. The art of a blessing. What blessing did Isaac give his son Jacob? And what lesson does it hold for us? That is tonight's exploration. Okay, so let's begin. We're going to begin with reading the narrative inside. So let me share my screen with you. Let's do this. Riva. How's it going over there? Airplane. Airplane? Yeah, look. Nice. <laughs> nice. Okay, here we go. I'm going to share my screen with you, and we are set to begin. All right. We got to start with Ray. Ray, the, uh, the new Bubby. Once again, please, alter Bubby, whatever. I'm not sure how you, how you say it correctly, but... Um, Please read text 1A. This is, if you have a book, it's page 86. Here's the story of the blessings. Please unmute yourself, Ray. Ray, don't forget to unmute yourself and take it away. 
okay. And Isaac said to Jacob, Please come closer so that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son, Esau, or not. So Jacob drew near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him, and he said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like the hands of his brother Esau, and he blessed him. And he said, Are you indeed my son Esau? And he said, I am. Continue, please. Yeah. No, you're good. You're good. Yeah, yeah, please. And he said, Serve it to me that I may eat of the game of my son so that my soul will bless you. And he served him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, Please come closer and kiss me, my son. And he came closer, and he kissed him, and he smelled the fragrance of his garments. And he blessed him, and he said, Behold, the fragrance of my son is like the fragrance of a field that God has blessed. All right, thank you. So this is the uh, what we would call perhaps the preamble, as we'll see tonight. It's not just a preamble, but it holds a lot of significance um, and ex explaining what the nature of the blessing is. But so far, we've had Jacob come approach his father. His father can't see. He's, uh, his, his eyes don't work. And, um, and, and he's, uh, he says he's Esau for the blessing. He's here for the blessing. His father is a little bit suspicious. All right, you, you, we, we read it together. Ultimately, he gives him the blessing. Now, let's read together. Um, uh, Dr. Maxi, please read this next reading. This is going to be text 1b, and this is the blessing itself. All right, please take it away. And may God give you of the dew of the heavens and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and wine. Nations shall serve you and kingdoms shall bow down to you. You shall be a master over your brothers and your mother's sons shall bow down to you. Those who curse you shall be cursed and those who bless you shall be blessed. Thank you. I'm keeping this blessing up because on the screen for another few moments because, again, this is the main focus of tonight's class, the art of a blessing, understanding the nature of what the blessing actually was. And the truth is, I mean, if you look at it in the original, in the Hebrew, you have one, two verses. In the English, it's also two paragraphs. Um, there's so much, there's so much, a wealth of, of information, a wealth of commentaries on this and so many different angles to explore when you think about, you know, what actually did the blessing entail. But I want to focus on one word. In fact, in Hebrew, it's one letter. You're not going to believe this. The one word I want to focus on of this blessing is the word and. You probably think I'm kidding, right? The, the, literally the word and. The word and that appears at the beginning of this First paragraph, and may God give, of, give you of the dew of the heavens. Forget about the rest. Don't forget, but let's put that aside. What does the word and mean? In Hebrew, it's one letter, vav, v'yitain. Not yitain, but v'yitain, which the prefix vav means and. So we're going to explore what does the and mean. 
Now, I want to ask you, I mean, you and I have used the word and before, right? When do you use the word and? What does the word and signify and, uh, and indicate? You're putting two things together. Good, you're putting two things together. So it's this and that, you know, one person and the other. So David in the chat is asking a great question. So what came before, right? If you say, and may God do such and such and give you such and such. But so what came before? It's something that's unspoken and this also. So what's, what's, what's the and? If you say and, it implies that there was something there before. Well, what was there before? That's David's question. Rashi, oh, sorry, Bev. Um, Bev, you want to jump in? Unmute because it didn't come through. Um, yeah. Um, um, I was taught that the vav changes the future to the past. Sometimes. Sometimes it does. It creates a past. But in this case, the blessing is for the future. You know, may God give you, you know, from now on, certain blessings. So in this case, we can't say grammatically that it's referring to the past because it's a blessing for the future. So, so it's literally, it literally is translated as and. So the commentaries address this. What does the word and mean? Why do you start a sentence or a blessing with and? Oh, and, what's the end? We're, we're going to go with Rashi's comment. We're going to go with Rashi. Hold on one second. We're going to go with one of the most basic approaches that we find in Rashi. Okay, let me share my screen with you one more time. Again, if you have a book, then just open up, please, to page 88. Um, otherwise, follow my text. All right, um, Donna, please read text number two, Rashi. Don't forget to unmute. And may God give you, may he give and give again. Rashi says, what does it mean, v'yitain l'cha, v'yitain l'cha, and may God give? It means yitain v'yachzer v'yitain. May God give you, and then may he continue to give you again, and again, and again, and again. So what is the, what is the, why the prefix vav, why the and may God give you? The implication is there should be a giving and another giving. So to David's question, so what came before? Rashi's answer, another, another instance of giving. So it's the blessing is not only should God give you of the dew of the heavens and the fat of the earth, God should give you again and again and again. Hence the and, which indicates a repeated giving or an additional giving. All right, that's Rashi. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. God shouldn't only bless you once. He should bless you multiple times and forever. It's, 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 it's lovely. It's beautiful. However, you know, and, and I should jump in here for a second. One of the really beautiful things that the Rebbe taught us was how to study Rashi. You see, everyone thinks Rashi. Rashi writes in his introduction that when you're studying Torah on a basic level, when I say basic, uh, on a very straightforward, you know, level, 
then you should look into Rashi. Rashi says, my commentary is, is, is written for the Ben Chamesh Lamikra, for the five-year-old who's studying Torah. It doesn't only mean five-year-old. He gets that phrase from what it says in Pirkei Avot. It says in the Ethics of Our Fathers that when you're five years old, you should start learning Torah. And then uh, 10 years old, Mishnah, 15, year, 15 years old, the Talmud. By the way, we announced a new Talmud course tonight, so don't take a look at that. It's on the website. But I digress. The point is, when a child is five, it's a good age to start learning the Torah, the Chumash, the five books of Moses. Well, how do you explain it to a child? How do you explain it on a basic level? Rashi says, that's my commentary. There are mystical commentaries and Midrashic commentaries. Rashi says, that's, you have other sources for that. I'm going to give you a straightforward approach to study Torah and to resolve all the questions and give you all the explanations you need to get through the text and understand it on a very straightforward, basic level. Okay, so Rashi is giving us a very basic, straightforward understanding. So when people study Rashi, and, and the way they study Rashi for hundreds of years, hun literally hundreds of years, many people felt that Rashi was very basic and simple and kind of, um, I don't know, I don't know a nice way to say it, but, you know, basic, simple, not sophisticated. The Rebbe taught us, that Rashi is not simple at all. You could understand Rashi in a simple way also, but Rashi is far from simple. In fact, Rashi contains such depth and such, such profound ideas that it really takes a tremendous amount of scholarship to, under, to begin understanding what Rashi is saying. And Rashi, in his simple commentaries, simple, quote-unquote, so-called simple commentaries, includes also some of the greatest secrets of the, the, the mystical side of Torah, as the Rebbe called it, Yaina Shel Torah, the wine of Torah, in other words, the secrets of Torah, the Kabbalah, is also hinted sometimes, oftentimes, in Rashi as well. So Rashi is far from basic. Rashi is very, very deep. The Rebbe gave us a gift, literally a gift of re-meeting um, Rashi again on a different level. In honor of his mother, after his mother passed away, the Rebbe would dedicate a, a, a sicha, one talk. When he would fabreng, he would dedicate one, one of the talks. There was a series of talks on Shabbat afternoon. One of them would be focused on explaining one Rashi in the, in the Torah portion. It was called a Rashi sicha, a talk on Rashi. The Rebbe would quote the verse, quote the Rashi, and begin to eviscerate it with upwards of a dozen questions, if not more, totally ripping apart the Rashi. And you're left with, you, start, you thought you had a Rashi that made sense, you're left with, what was Rashi even saying? How could he say that? And then the Rebbe explains exactly what Rashi was talking about. So we don't have dozens of questions here, but the Rebbe asks a very basic question on Rashi. Again, Rashi seems to be very innocent. What is the Vav? What is V'yitein Lecha? And God, and, and may God give you. What's, what's this and? God should give and give again. The Rebbe says, I don't understand it. God, what, what does it mean God, God should give once and twice? What's the difference between the first giving and the second giving? What does it mean? That there's a, there's a giving, yitain, v'yachzer v'yitain. There should be, right, may he give and give again. What is it? It sounds nice. It's so good for a bumper sticker, but what does it actually mean for you and I? What does it mean that God is giving once and giving twice? <laughs> What's the difference? Second of all, the Rebbe asks, and I'm, I'm reducing it into two core questions. So the second question is, 
When it comes to a human being who gives, it makes sense that they might need to give again because a human being is limited. Therefore, what a human being gives is necessarily also limited, finite. So the human gives, and then at some point needs to give again. But when it comes to God, who's infinite, can God give an infinite blessing once and then be done with it? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, you understand what the question? If you're dealing with an infinite being, an infinite being can give an infinite gift, and then you're set. So a finite being has finite instances of giving. So you give once, and it, it's limited. So you give again, it's also limited. So you give, you give, you give, you give and give again. But when it comes to the Abisha, when it comes to Hashem, who's higher than limitation, who's not stuck in finite dimensions, why does God have to give multiple times? Let him give one massive, infinite blessing to Jacob. That's it. What's this give and give again? Um, in, in case you want to read it inside, that's why we have text three. I'm going to share my screen with you. And we can actually read the Rebbe's question inside the text. Um, does Fred, if, is Fred up to reading? Fred, are you? Hey, Fred. All right. Uh, don't forget to unmute. Oh, sorry. There you go. All right. Text three. Take it away, please. What was lacking in the first gift? Give that warranted an additional gift. Give again. If we were talking about a human giver, we could understand. Even when one gives a very large and abundant gift, at the end of the day, it has a limit. It is much as the giver is limited. Therefore, it can be supplemented by an additional gift. But in our case, the giver is God. Certainly, God's first gift is complete and unlimited, as God himself is complete and unlimited. If so, what is added by giving again? All right, perfect. So that's the question. Again, one of the questions. That's the main one that we're going to focus on. How do we explain this blessing of Isaac to his son Jacob, and May God give you, what's the end that God should give and give again? Why does God have to give twice if God is infinite? All right, that's the question. We're going to explore tonight two approaches. Two different approaches, but they're complementary on some level. One that speaks to the nature of blessings and gifts, and one that speaks to the nature of the human being. Very interesting um, explanations. On this, on this idea. And so, again, just to kind of bring us back into focus, we're trying to explore some deeper themes, some deeper messages contained in Isaac's epic blessing to his son, Jacob, who took the blessings. And the focus is on one letter, the letter Vav, which is translated as and, and trying to understand what secrets are contained in that one letter that didn't have to be there, seemingly, but is there, and therefore contains a lot of messages. So, to understand this, we're going to begin the exploration by quoting a Mishnah, one of the teachings from Avot, ethics, known as Pirkei Avot, ethics of our fathers. So this is chapter number two of, the, of, of, of uh, Pirkei Avot. Uh, let's see, Steve, are you up to reading? I'm going to share my screen. This is page 89. Uh, Steve, whenever you are ready... Take it away. 
Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai had five disciples, Rabbi Elazar ben Rakarnas, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hananan, yeah, Rabbi Yossi HaKohen, Rabbi Shimon ben Natal, and Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. He would recount their praises. Rabbi Elazar ben Hakornas, her, her Kenas, is a cemented cistern that doesn't lose a drop. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hananya, fortunate is she who gave birth to him. Rabbi Yossi HaKohen, a Hasim, pious one, Rabbi Shimon ben Natal, uh, fear sin, Rabbi Elazar ben Aruch, is as an ever-increasing wellspring. I'm gonna, thank you. I'm going to keep this up for a moment, and I, I just want to reflect on this and, and give a little bit of context. So who was this rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai? So you might remember Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the Talmud tells us, was a scholar, a sage, a rabbi, a leader who lived during the end of the Second Temple Era, which is very important. He lived toward the end of the Second Temple Era. He became the leader in the year of the, of the Jewish community in the year 50, which is only 19 years before the temple was destroyed. Famously, he was the rabbi who, when Vespasian, who was then the Roman general that was sent to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, when Vespasian um, was laying siege to Jerusalem, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai broke through the siege and he met with Vespasian one-on-one -on -one, and he said to him, I'll give you one request. And Rabbi Yochanan, and the rabbi said, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai said, um, spare Yavne v'chachomeha. Spare the city of Yavne. I mean, to ask for a stave of, of destroying the temple, he believed was not going to be successful. So he said, look, the next best thing is spare one city and allow Torah to, be, to flourish and to be um, studied there and taught there and, and, and Judaism to carry on. And so in, 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 uh, in, in our history, in our tradition, we understand that Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai in some way kind of uh, pivoted Judaism when the te temple, second temple was destroyed, um, pivoted by, uh, by, by reclaiming a space for Torah study and for Judaism to carry on. Okay, so he has five disciples, this rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai, five disciples, and these are just, the, they are quoted many times, hundreds of times in the Mishnah, they're all from the same era, the, the, the era of the Mishnah, and they were all incredible uh, scholars in their own right. But he assigned a specific praise for each of them. So I, I, I know Steve re read it, but just to, just to recap. So Rabbi Eliezer ben Harkonus, a cemented cistern that doesn't lose a drop. Rabbi Shub ben Hananya, fortunate is she who gave birth to him. Yoseak, Rabbi Yosei Cohen, a chassid, a pious one. Rabbi Shub ben Netanel, fear sin. Rabbi Eliezer ben Arach is an ever-increasing wellspring. So as these descriptions kind of come at us, you and I might think like, well, who's... Which, which sounds the best? Which sounds the most flattering? Which sounds like the greatest quality amongst these five? Well, we don't have to do the work because the mission itself tells us that the rabbi himself ranked them. Well, we don't know one through five, but we know who was number one. So take a look at text 4b. Um, let's ask uh, Bev. Are you up to reading? All right. Okay. Rabbi Yochanan would say, if all the sages of Israel were to be in one cup of a balanced scale, and Eliezer ben Horkinus were in the other, he would outweigh them all. 
Abu Sha'ul said in his name, if all the sages of Israel were to be in one cup of a balanced scale, Eliezer ben Horkinus included, and Eleazar ben Araf were in the other, the latter would outweigh them all. So, in the inimitable, uh, right, this is classic Jewish discussion, there's a difference of opinion as to what Rabbi Yochanan would say about his students. So the first quote is, if you ranked all of the scholars, forget these five, all the sages of Israel, put them on one side of the balance scale, and on the other side, one rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer ben Harkonos, he would outweigh them all, or whatever, right? He was greater than them all. And, but Abba Shal said in his name, in Rabbi Yochanan's name, so now we don't even know what Rabbi Yochanan actually said, because we have two different traditions, but Abba Shal said in his name, yeah, that if all the sages were on one side of the scale, including the aforementioned Eliezer ben Harkonos, and Eliezer ben Arach were in the other, Eliezer ben Arach would, 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 would rank higher, would outweigh them all, in other words, he was greater than them all. Which means that it boils down to two. We have a fun... Our two finalists are Eliezer ben Harkonos and Eliezer ben Arach. So if you, want to re- if you want to recall, I'm going to pull up the page again. So what were their qualities? Rabbi Eliezer ben Harkonos was the cistern that didn't lose a drop. And Elizabeth, Rabbi Eliezer ben Arach was an ever-increasing wellspring. What's the difference? What's the difference between the cistern that doesn't lose a drop and the Mayan Hamit, Hamit Gaber and the, and the wellspring that keeps on increasing. What's the difference? So it's very simple. It's very simple. The cemented system that doesn't lose a drop is retaining, but not adding, right? A perfect recipient, a perfect vessel. So whatever you put in remains, but you're not going to get anything out. You're not going to be able to take out something that wasn't put in. Are you with me on that? The cemented system means locked in, focused, learning, getting, and, and if you ask him anything, he'll recall it, an ironclad cement cistern memory. He can repeat everything back, but you're not going to get innovative, creative ideas. Eliezer, sorry, Elazar ben Arach, kemayan hamit gaber. He was like a wellspring that keeps on producing more and more and more life-giving waters, which means that, yes, he learns from a teacher, but he's also able to innovate on his own. Are you with me in the distinction? So one has a great memory, and one has great innovation. Two different qualities. Two different qualities, different styles of brains, different styles of personalities, but two different qualities. Of all the sages, these were the top two. So one tradition says... That if all the sages were on one side and Eliezer ben Harkonos was on the other side, the cement, Eliezer ben Harkonos, then the cemented cistern would outweigh them all. But the other one, and we go by the latter opinion, says, no, no, even if he were on the other side, even if he were together with all the sages, but Rabbi Eliezer ben Arach, the one sage, the last one mentioned, the, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the spring, the overflowing spring, sorry, ever-increasing wellspring, was on the other side, then he would outweigh them all. Which means that in the final analysis, it's great, it's great to recall and remember and repeat, but it's even greater to innovate and to grow. So what this means in practical terms is as follows. Think about education. 
let's stick with the theme of study and education. So you have one student where you teach and you teach and you teach, and what do they walk away with? Exactly what you taught them. And then you have another student who you teach, oh, but they take the fundamentals, they take the tools, they take the concepts and the framework, and they're able to run with it and create new ideas and new teachings. And they're authentic, right? Obviously authentic, but they're able to run with it. That is a greater gift, one could argue, than just merely retaining and repeating. Because it's all about internalizing it and running with it. So Susan says, educators call this Bloom's taxonomy. Nice. Susan, explain for a second. If you're up to it, yeah. Hold on, don't forget to unmute. Yeah, so there's about seven levels in Bloom's taxonomy. And like one of the lowest ones is knowledge. So for young children, you're building on knowledge, you're building on recall, you're building on memory. And then it goes up and up and up. And then there's synthesis where you could take different thoughts and blend them together and analysis. So there's about seven different levels. And when teachers are teaching a lesson, yes, they try to get to that lowest one. Because if you don't have the knowledge, if you don't have that building block, you're not going to get anywhere. But that alone isn't enough to solve problems. And that's what life is about. You need the synthesis and you need the analysis. So that, that comes later. But in a lesson, as it goes by, you try to build that in too. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, spot on. So that's exactly what, what we're saying over here. The first dimension, Rabbi Eliezer Ben Harkonos, he had the ability to get the information. And he never let go of that information. He got it, and he got it solid. Total recall, right? Total ability to remember. But Rabbi Elazar uh, Ben Arach, he was, he really got it. He was able to run with it, to utilize the tools, to keep on innovating and advancing. So in education, that would be a higher level of teaching and of learning that was reflected in that latter sage. What the Rebbe does is the Rebbe connects this with the blessing of V'yitain L'cha, and may God give you. We said, what's the and? That God should give and give again. God should not only give once, but God should give multiple times. And we ask the question, what does it mean that God should give and give again? What's this business of giving again? If God is unlimited, let him just give. The answer, give once and it's unlimited anyway. And the answer is that what, we're, what, what the verse is alluding to and what, the, what Rashi's explanation is alluding to is not that God needs to give again, but God is giving the blessing in such a way that the blessing is going to continue to be a blessing because Jacob himself will have internalized it so much and be, have be given the framework to internalize the blessing that he can then keep on adding, that he can on his own add on to the blessing and increase the blessing and share the blessing. He owns the blessing. The blessing becomes part of him and it grows with him 
and it helps him grow and he's able to share it with others as opposed to just receiving a blessing on his own. It's kind of like the difference would be within getting back to education. You teach a student to the level where they understand or you teach a student to the level where they can in turn teach someone else. Right? You give someone the skills to not just be a student, but to in turn be, the, be a teacher on their, in their own right. You gave them skills of learning so that they can now also be innovators in education. And the same thing is true with the blessing. God, what kind of blessing is this that, that Isaac is giving to Jacob? He's saying, may God give you such a blessing, such a fierce blessing, that you can keep on giving this blessing and the blessing will keep on growing and increasing within you. Let's take a look at this inside. Once again, I'm going to share my screen with you and let's read this. This is text five. Um, here we go. Um, I am going to read this, text five. The Rebbe explains, the difference between the cemented cistern and the ever-increasing wellspring which is kind of like the difference between something that's static versus something that's dynamic. So that difference also, sorry, as applied to Jacob's blessing is as follows. Jacob didn't just receive goodness from above. He also received the ability to stand on his own two feet, to develop that goodness in a personal way using his own resources. This is what it means to give and give again. Isaac blessed Jacob that God give him the goodness from above and also give again, which means the ability to use this goodness and strengthen himself with it on his own. So the blessing was not just to be a static or, yeah, a static recipient, but a dynamic participant in the blessings and in the proliferation and the advancement of these blessings and sharing it with others that he should be a dynamic partner. By the way, this was also part of the gift, right? When it comes to education, how does the student become a dynamic part of the learning? It's it, 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 in large part it has to do with how the teacher is facilitating that or guiding the student in that process. The same thing is true with this blessing. Remember, God is giving. Well, the, the blessing is that may God give and give, which means that may God give you the blessing, but also give you the ability or help you have the ability that you on your own can run with it and can grow with it and can internalize it and share it, etc. So that's the dual nature of the giving and both elements come from, come from God. But the second, of course, is a gift from God, how you can internalize it and, and run with it on your own and not, it shouldn't just remain a gift. Okay, so this is one explanation. The first explanation, and we, 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 we've leaned on a, uh, a teaching from Pirkei Avot, from Methodist of Our Fathers, vis-a-vis cement cisterns versus ever-increasing wellsprings. And we're saying there's a giving that's static and a giving that's dynamic. And Isaac was saying, may God give you the dynamic form of the blessing, not the static. Fantastic. Let's go a little bit deeper. Let's go a little bit deeper and now put this concept in terms of human personality. But first, before we do that, let me check in and see if there are any questions or comments on the aforementioned themes. Questions or comments? Now is your time. Yeah, Susan. Susan, I think the I think though, like you need both because if you have that wellspring, but you don't have something to hold it in, 
then it's constantly pouring out and right. you constantly have to get more and more and more. So like a bathtub, if you're going to turn on the water, but you don't have a stopper, and how are you going to take a bath? It's just going to go down the drain, down the drain. Right. Or the difference between a bathtub and a jacuzzi. Whatever, just as you, as, you, as you might imagine it, right? So you have something static and something dynamic, but if the drain's open and the water's going out, yeah, there's a problem. It's not your, uh, the, uh, the jets are not going to work. Okay, so what's, exactly, so you need both. Really, both are critical forms of giving, and both are important pieces of the blessing. You need the giving and the giving again. And the, the idea is that Jacob shouldn't just be you know, receive it in a very static way, very stagnant way, but he should be a dynamic force, a blessing in his own right. And that's the greatest blessing, that he should be a dynamic participant. Okay, now let's talk about what this means on a human personality level, because there are also, if you divide, uh, you can, we can talk about different personalities and also kind of put them into similar categories, and you'll see what I mean in a second. The difference between, what I'm referring to is the difference between a tzaddik and a baal teshuva. And this is, these are phrases that we talk about very often, but let me explain the, the Hebrew and, and, and translate it, and then explain the concept as we mean it in this context. So tzaddik means perfectly righteous individual. The baal teshuva is someone who's, who hasn't always been perfectly righteous, but is now working to get back to that good place, Right? Um, in other words, 99.9999% of human beings fall into the second category, and perfect tzaddikim are very rare. Now, typically, if you were ranking people, and we shouldn't be ranking people because that's not our job, but if you were, I won't tell anybody, right? So you would typically put a tzaddik above the Baal Shuvah, right? The perfectly righteous person never sinned, never tasted the forbidden. You would put them above the person who has you know, dabbled in things that they shouldn't have dabbled in. Let's just leave it at that, right? So you would rank the tzaddik higher than the Baal Shuvah, and that's understandable. However, if you've been to any of these classes at all before, you know that there's another metric that the Talmud says, the place where the Baal Shuvah, where the Baal Shuvah stands, the tzaddik can't touch. The place where the penitent, the person who's tasted you know, sin and come back where they stand, that wrong, the perfect tzaddik can't reach. The question is why. We've given many different explanations over the years, but let's put it into the terminology that we've used tonight. The tzaddik is static, and the Baal Shuva is dynamic. Why is, this, why is the tzaddik um, static? Think about it. Think about the righteous person. God said to do this. He did it. God said do that. He did that. God said, don't do the other. He didn't do it. Right? Everything that God gave, he accepted like a cement cistern. Are you with me? He didn't drop any balls. Everything God lobbed him at this. Do this. I got it. Do that. Got it. Everything perfect. It's, fanta it's a fantastic quality. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's, in fact, perfect. But it's static. Because what's the contribution? What's, what's, what, right? There's nothing more than what was put in is what you have. God said all these things, and that's what you have. However, you think about the Baal Shuva, you have a different metric altogether. Let's, let's do a bit of a deeper dive into the Baal Shuva. The Baal Shuva is somebody who has tasted sin, who has dabbled in the forbidden. 
again, <laughs> that's, unless you're a tzaddik, which is extremely rare, this is all of us, right? Having gone, so, so, what, so what type of avodah, what type of service is that when a person comes back? Well, it says in many sources, including Talmudic sources, Kabbalistic sources, Hasidic sources, it says that the advantage, if you will, of the Baal Tshuva is that when you do Teshuva, you can actually convert sins into mitzvot. You see, typically, let me just give a, a very, very quick intro on this, or a very quick explanation. Typically, the world is divided by God into two categories, the permitted and the forbidden. And there are sparks of holiness, in other words, positive potential in the permissible, but in the forbidden, that's why it's forbidden, because there are no sparks of holiness there. You cannot flip it for good. Unless you did something that you shouldn't have, and you wandered into that territory, and now you're coming back with a greater strength because of that, that's the only way you can flip it. Are you with me? You can convert the abject darkness into light only after the fact, in it being powered by that darkness to be propelled toward the light. That's the only way to flip it, but it's possible which is what the Talmud says in text number six. Let me share this with you. Text number six. And once again, I'm going to read. Uh, let's pull this up. Page 92. Reish Lakish. Reish Lakish said, Great is Teshuvah, great is repentance, for it transforms one's sins into merits, into mitzvot. As the verse states, and when a wicked man repents of his wickedness and performs justice and righteousness, he shall live because of them. In other words, there's an increase, there's an increase in positivity and in life with teshuva, with the, the rebound from a place of darkness. And again, I'm explaining why on a, a bit of a mystical level why that's so. Because typically, you cannot elevate the forbidden except in a situation where you've dabbled there and because of that, that propels you back to a good place, so now that negative energy is part of the positive journey, and that transforms it into a positive place. The bottom line is, that's a dynamic experience. That's adding on to what God gave you. You see, God made those distinctions between good and bad, between the elevatable and the non-elevatable, and by dabbling into that dark space and coming back, the Baal Teshuvah is able to elevate even that which was not elevatable based on the script. In other words, the Baal Teshuvah is writing a new script. That's what we call dynamic service of God. So the tzaddik is following the script. There's nothing innovative about that. Again, not knocking the tzaddik, but not innovative, not doing anything beyond what God said or what God said to do or what not to do. But the Baal Tshuva, who went off script, are you with me in that, right? The Baal Tshuva went off script. The Baal Tshuva did something, read the wrong lines, but because of that, turned the scene into something that the director and the author and the screenwriter could not have imagined. Are you with me in that analogy? Maybe that's the best way that I could phrase it. So the person who recites the lines perfectly is an incredible actor, 
right? Incredible perfection, like uh, 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 a cist, a cement cistern that doesn't lose a drop. All the lines memorized, perfection. But the actor who goes off script and who creates some drama but brings it back, that's a dynamic scene. That's a scene that's probably more memorable than, the, than otherwise. That's a memorable scene. And so therefore, the duality that we have between the cement cistern and the ever-increasing wellspring, that duality is not just in the context of education, it's not just in the context of blessings, it's in the context of personal virtue and vice and divine service. You have the tzaddik who is perfection but stagnant on a certain level. And then you have the Balchuva who is dynamic because of the chaos, because of the drama. So there's a dynamic nature to it. So who's higher? Who's greater? Depends. If you want perfection, you got the tzaddik. If you want some dynamic growth, you got, you got to call on your Baal Shuva. That's where that is. Reish Lakish is the one who said this in the Talmud. I'm going to share my screen with you again so you can see what I mean. It was Reish Lakish who said that the Baal Shuva, the one who does teshuva, can transform sins into merits and avera into a mitzvah, sin into a mitzvah, which is impossible, by the way, because that's completely rewriting the script. Well, the Baal Shuvah can rewrite the script. That's the point. But it's Reish Lakish who said that. You know why it's Reish Lakish who said that? Because Reish Lakish knew that from the inside out. Did I tell you the story of Reish Lakish a few weeks ago? No? Reish Lakish grew up in a Jewish home. And he grew up, according to many sources, he went to Jewish schools. He went to yeshiva. But as he got older, he went into a life of crime. And he was the head of a group of highway robbers that would wait on the roads and the crossroads and steal and rob people of their belongings. He lived a life of crime. Until one day he met his old friend, whose name was Rabbi Yochanan. And Rabbi Yochanan changed his life. And if you want to know the story, I'll read it to you right now. From the Talmud, text number 7. One day, Rabbi Yochanan was bathing in the Jordan River. Reish Lakish, who at that point was still living a life of crime, saw him and jumped in the Jordan, pursuing him. In other words, he probably wanted to steal something from him. Um, Rabbi Yochanan said, your strength is fit for Torah study. Reish Lakish replied, your beauty is fit for women. A bizarre exchange, right? Basically, Reish Lakish was pursuing him to steal from him, and he was ex exhibiting great strength. So he said, Rabbi Yochanan said, you're re really strong. Reish Lakish said, you're a handsome dude. Rabbi Yochanan said to him, if you return to a life of Torah, I will marry you off to my sister, who is even more beautiful than I am. All right, let's continue. Rabbi L Reish Lakish accepted upon himself to study Torah. Rabbi Yochanan taught him Tanakh and Mishnah and turned him into a great man. When, fast forward many, many, many years, and, and you should know in the Talmud, there are countless, probably hundreds of discussions that are quoted between these two parties, Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish. Let's continue inside with the rest of the story. When Reish Lakish died, Rabbi Yochanan, his study partner, his brother-in-law, was exceedingly pained. The rabbi said, who will go calm him? They said, let Rabbi Elazar ben Padat go, as he's proficient in Torah study. When 
Sorry, Rabbi Elazar ben Padat went and sat before Rabbi Yochanan. Every time Rabbi Yochanan would cite a teaching, Rabbi Elazar ben Padat would say, there's a ruling taught in a brighter that supports your opinion. Rabbi Yochanan said to him, are you like the son of, of Lakish, uh, Reish Lakish? The son of Lakish, when I would cite a teaching before him, instead of supporting my idea, he would raise 24 difficulties, attempting to prove me wrong. And then I would furnish him with 24 answers, supporting my claim. And in this fashion, the study was broadened. And yet you tell me there's a bright to support substantiating me. Do I not know that I'm speaking sense? I don't want a yes man. I want someone who's going to challenge me to make it stronger, to refine the law. I don't want someone to agree with me. That's boring. Rabbi Yochanan went around rending his clothing, weeping and saying, where are you, son of Lakish? Where are you, son of Lakish? The story has a, horrific, has a very, very sad ending. He essentially died in agony and heartbreak. He never recovered over the loss of his brother-in-law and close friend and study partner, Rish Lakish. Rabbi Yochanan died shortly thereafter of a broken heart and of anguish. What's the point? How did Reish Lakish have the ability that when Rabbi Yochanan t said something, he had 24 uh, ways to prove him wrong? And then Rabbi Yochanan had 24 back to counter it, and they kind of you know, uh, refined the law through that process. But how did he have 24 challenges? Because he had been a thief. And when you're a thief, you have to come up with the right angles. When you're a thief... You have to have, you have to outsmart the other guy. You have to think outside the box. You have to anticipate a move. You have to see all the edges, all the angles. And so the commentators explain that's how Reish Lakish was so able to work with and work against Rabbi Yochanan because of his previous life. In other words, he used those teaching. He used his prior path, walking the, 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 the steps of darkness, he used it for a greater good to create additional light in Torah study. You see, when they paired Rabbi Yochanan with a great scholar, it didn't work. They paired him with Reish Lakish, who was a great scholar, but had been also the head of a gang. There was incredible innovation in Torah study. So you have two different personas. The tzaddik is perfection, but you might not have innovation. That's like Rabbi Lozim ben Padat. He was a scholar, he was a genius. But where's the, where's the innovation? Reish Lakish, who walked the other side, is able to help create a dynamic study experience. And so what's the message? The message is that there are two types of personas. And Reish Lakish was very well suited to teach us that the, about the advantage of the Baal Shuvah because he knew it from the inside out. He knew it from first-hand experience about the advantages of walking on the other side, going off script, and then creating a brand new script that's greater than had you just followed the script. Reish Lakish knew this. And because of that, he taught it for us in the Talmud for all time to study about the advantage of a Baal Shuva. So back to our context, back to our verses, back to our story, the blessing from Isaac to Jacob. So Isaac tells Jacob, and may God give you, and may God give you. And Rashi says, it means God should give you once and give you again. And we asked, what's this multiple giving when it comes to God? God's infinite, one, one infinite gift sounds like enough. And then we explain, no, because there's two types of giving. There's static giving and then there's dynamic giving. Well, now we have another angle to understand this as well. 
What Isaac was blessing Jacob is the blessing of two paths in divine service. There's the blessing of a tzaddik, that's one giving, and then there's a blessing of the Baal Shuvah. And what Isaac was telling Jacob is, I will give you the blessing and your descendants, whether they're perfect or whether they're imperfect. Even when there's imperfection, there's still a way back. And when you come back, it's even greater than had you not gone. Now, we don't intentionally veer off to come back to have a greater strength to go off script. We don't intentionally go off script, God forbid. But if we happen to find ourselves off script, there's an opportunity. Who gave that blessing for that opportunity? Right here. This is our Torah portion. Isaac. Isaac says, And may God give you. And the end, the Rebbe explains, the gift of the blessing for the tzaddik and a gift, the blessing for the Baal Shuva, That that too should be a blessing. That even the one who comes back should be able to have a greater blessing than before. This is the blessing the deeper meaning of the blessing. Let me share the screen, my screen with you once again and read this inside as the Rebbe explains it. The advantage, this is text number eight. The advantage of the ever-increasing wellspring is his limitlessness, which, it, which the cemented cistern lacks. Similarly, the advantage of Baalei Teshuvah is that their spiritual work is not restricted. As we know, tzaddikim operate in a very orderly, measured way, advancing one step after another. But the Baal Shuva can jump every hurdle, advancing without taking the steps. Infinite growth, unrestricted growth, like that ever-increasing wellspring. And this is the meaning of the blessing. That God, Isaac said, may God give you and your descendants the blessing. Not only the power of, a tzad- of the tzaddik, but also the power of the Baal Teshuvah. Had this blessing not been given, we don't know what the world would have looked like. Maybe if we went off script, there would be no way back. But but Isaac gives a blessing that yes, there should be a second path. There should be one path and a second path, space for those who have been off track to be able to come back. This is how the Rebbe explains it. And let's pull up this text, text number nine. It emerges. This is powerful. That the blessing Jacob received, that God give and give again, includes not only spiritual and physical goodness, including both benefits, the full blessing itself, as well as the ability to develop it on its own, as we said before. Rather, it includes the ability from above to live by both models of spiritual growth. The tzaddik model, represented by God giving, which means following the script, as well as the Baal model, represented by God giving again, that's going off script. Again, What it means is that when Isaac gives the blessing to Jacob, he's giving him not only the ability to be a dynamic partner in the blessing, which we said in part one of this class, but also the gift of the ability to come back and come back stronger than ever after going in a negative negative place. That gift, that path, that channel opens up with this blessing in this week's Torah portion. Finally, I want to connect it with one more piece, which is the preamble. I told you about the preamble is important, and here we have the preamble again. We had it before. I'm going to read it again, text number 10. This is before the blessing is given, when Isaac calls his son closer. He says, come and give me a kiss. And his father Isaac said to him, please come closer and kiss me, my son. And he came closer and he kissed him, and Isaac smelled the fragrance of Jacob's garments, and he blessed him, and he said, father to son said, behold, the fragrance of my son is like the fragrance of a field that God has blessed. Look at that last line. 
Behold, the fragrance of my son is like the fragrance of a field that God has blessed. And the manager says something amazing. In that last line, there's a hint to the holy temple. The fragrance of my son refers to the fragrance of the offerings in the temple. The fragrance of a field represents when the temple is destroyed and, 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 and raised back down to a field. And God has blessed refers to ultimately the building of the temple again in the times of Mashiach. You understand what just happened there? I'm going to tell it to you one more time. Look at that last line. Remember, it's a father telling a son about the blessings of his fragrance that God has blessed. Whatever. That's in the literal sense. But the Medrash says, what does it mean? It's referring to the temple, its destruction, and its rebuilding. Three parts of the sentence. The fragrance of my son. That first, that piece right there, fragrance of my son, refers to the temple when it was standing, and there were sacrifices, and the incense, and God loved the fragrance. Then it says the fragrance of a field. And that's referring to the temple when it's destroyed. Raised down to a field. Knocked down and plowed over like a field. And then it says that God has blessed. And that refers to the building of the final temple. And if you don't, here's the source, text 11. Isaac's statement, behold, the fragrance of my son refers to the sacrifices as a pleasing fragrance. Like the fragrance of a field. The second part of, the, of that sentence refers to a vision of the temple destroyed. As the verse states, because of, you, Zion, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. And the final statement that God has blessed refers to a vision of the perfectly rebuilt temple in the times of Mashiach. As the verse states, for there God commanded the blessing life forever. So we have three stages of temple. What are the three stages of temple? Of the holy temple? When it was standing, when it was knocked down, and when it will be rebuilt. And the Rebbe says this is the perfect preamble to the blessing that includes the blessing of return, of coming back from a place of darkness. Because what is the blessing? The blessing is, can you stare at the darkness where we've traveled? Can we stare at the darkness, at the dark path that we are on, having veered off of script? And can we see it as an opportunity to come back stronger than ever? Can we see the temple destroyed? And recognize that it's an opportunity to build an even greater temple than the one that we had before. It's about seeing opportunity in what others might say is disaster. Or unfortunate circumstances. Or disappointment or failure. Can you see opportunity and failure? Or just failure? The Baal Shuvah is able to look at his or her own life and say, you know what? I messed up. But because of that, I'm going to come back stronger than before. And they come back stronger than before. And they rise above in a dynamic way to the level of the tzaddik. That's the power of the Baal Shuva. And that's the message of the preamble. When the temple is up, it's wonderful. It's like that tzaddik state. Perfection, it's perfect. Built per, per God's specs, etc. But then it's destroyed through our own actions. It was destroyed, taken away from us. And now it's knocked down to a field. Reduced to a, a plowed field. And now the question is, do you and I see the potential for rebuilding? Do you and I see an opportunity? Ah, it's knocked down. We can build it up better than ever. How do we look at disappointments? The ones that we create and the ones that are created for us. Right? When we make a mistake, do we beat ourselves up over it? Or do we say, you know what? It's a learning opportunity. I'm going to come back stronger. How do we look at getting knocked down by life itself? Do we say, woe is to me? You know, I, why, why am I, why am I uh, the, the, the unfortunate 
recipient of such, of such negativity? Or do we say, I got knocked down. This is an opportunity to rise even greater than before. Obviously, as you can probably tell, the Torah's approach. And Isaac, the blessing that he gives all of us through Jacob, because it's for Jacob and his descendants, and that's us. So the blessing for you and I is that when we get knocked down or when we knock ourselves down, it doesn't matter. When we find ourselves not on script, when we find ourselves on a different path than what we should have been on, we have to see it as an opportunity to climb higher than before, an opportunity to create more light than could have ever been attained through straightforward means. And in this way, we truly achieve the v'yitin lecha, the greatest blessing, the blessing of the and. Because as we've discovered tonight, the art of Isaac's blessing is to include a blessing that is found in the most curious of places. Thank you for joining me tonight for Torah studies. I hope this was meaningful to you. And I hope this resonated with you. I know it has for me. And uh, hopefully we all can look at ourselves and find spaces to create light out of otherwise darkness. I thank you for being here. I treasure the hour that we have to get, hour or so, give or take, that we have to study Torah on Wednesday nights and other opportunities as well. And once again, Masas of Terei, only Nachas from the entire Mishpacha, and only happiness and joy and good health to enjoy it all. All right, um, I'm here for questions, comments, um, rebuttals, whatever. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Maxi. Thank you, David. Um, yes. I have a comment. Go ahead, please. Uh, I would rank the tzaddik and the Baal Tshuva uh, at least to be uh, equal because it takes a lot of strength to be a tzaddik. True. Uh, it takes, yeah, it takes strength maybe for the Baal Tshuva to go back and be a tzaddik. He's not more than a tzaddik. He's right. actually, he, he, when he comes back, he's like a tzaddik. So I, I don't know why the Baal Tshuva is actually regarded as a better right. or higher rank than a tzaddik. Good, uh, good question. It takes personal strength to do it, that's true. But finally, he's doing what the tzaddik is doing all the time. And it's very difficult to do it and, and you know, persist. Right, so you, right, what you're saying is, no, what you're saying makes sense. So if the tzaddik is here and the Baal Shuvah has dipped down, so the Baal Shuvah gets back up, so yeah. he's at the same level. So what's this business of higher then? So it... it you know, he put himself in a hole, so he had to climb out of it, so it took more effort, but he's not higher than a tzaddik. It's a good question. The way it's explained in Kabbalah is that a, a, a little bit on different line, along different lines, and that is what I, I, I mentioned it briefly before, but the idea that the, that the Baal Tshuva is able to turn and transform the darkest of places into a catalyst for a greater connection. To give you an example, to give you an example, um, trying to think of a good example where something negative actually propels somebody in a greater way forward than had they not. Okay, I'm gonna. Use, this is not gonna be a great example, but it's an example. So if you're trying in the Olympics or whatever it is, if you're trying to jump over something, you know they have a, like a pole vault thing where you run and you put a thing down and you, yeah, right. That's my in-the-chair pole vaulting uh, meme or, uh, 
whatever. Yeah, so how do you pole vault? You don't stand there and, and try to jump because you don't have, so you go backwards and then you get a running jump and then you do the thing, whatever the technique is, etc. But you have to get a running start. So how do you get a running start? If you're standing right there, you have to go backwards and then forward. So the message here is that sometimes by going backwards, and again, there's, there's, there's different ways to explain it, how it works and why it works, but oftentimes by going backwards, it actually increases the velocity of the forward motion, which means that the intensity of the Baal Shuvah in doing the same mitzvah of the tzaddik is much greater. So it's not just it took, it took more effort to get back to ground level because you know, he or she dug himself or herself a hole, so now they're back up to ground level, but they're the same level. There's a gr- there can be, might be, a greater intensity in the very same mitzvah performance as a tzaddik with the Baal Shuvah because they've been at, on the other side, because they've tasted negativity. So that propels them with a greater intensity. It's kind of like, um, let me think of an example. It's like... Um, trampoline, Ari. A trampoline, okay. But no, I was thinking of another example. I was thinking... A pogo stick, to a trampoline, you go, you go with the force down, and, and then you get even higher. Right. I was thinking also of the... Of, of the also, also was, swimming. Swimming. from this pool, a bow and arrow. Yeah, okay. So, but all, all of these examples are, the, are, are a similar idea of going back and then going forward. But what I'm thinking now is... Um, what was I thinking? All right, I don't remember what I was thinking. But anyway, listen, there's a greater, w- there can be a greater intensity in the efforts, in the, in the um, oh, I was thinking of, of somebody who's thirsty. Somebody, sorry, somebody who doesn't have, somebody who has a very difficult experience. Okay, somebody who lived through the Great Depression, right? And knew real hunger. And knew like really what it's like to not have. Somebody who grew up in a very, very, very difficult environment. Their appreciation for food, water, stuff will perhaps always be on a different level than someone who's, who's always had. And so the person who by choice or by force, whatever it was, has found themselves disconnected from their spiritual path coming back to it is not just coming back to the same level as a tzaddik, but could be, possibly could be, if done right, on a greater level of intensity than the person who's never tasted that, who's never not had that. Donna. It's done. Rabbi Phyllis? Yeah. Isn't there a story of the, um, the uh, a man came to the Rebbe to face with a terrific challenge of uh, marrying out? And the Rebbe said to him, I really envy you. He said, what do you mean you envy me? And the Rebbe said something like, um, I've never had that challenge. I've never had to work through that. I envy you. Yeah. Is that kind of like what you're trying to allude to? I think the Rebbe was saying there that, you know, that God only gives people challenges that they can handle, which means that if this person is, has faced the, with a very deep and, and difficult spiritual challenge, it means that God really trusts them to have the ability to conquer that challenge, and that is incredible. So, but yeah, I mean, you could say this idea that that would create the greater intensity in, 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 in a form of rebound. Sure, sure. But I think that it's when you, when you're, when you're, when, when you don't have, 
If you're traveling in the desert and you don't have water, and then you find a place of water, you're not just going to drink to where you're satisfied. You're going to like throw the water on yourself. You're going to like, you're going to jump into the water, right? Encountering the lake after, you know, thinking that you're not going to make, God forbid, right? That, that, that There's no water and that's it. You're going to celebrate with the water like it's the greatest gift ever. So if you always had the water, how much do you appreciate it? Ari, I have another example. A teacher, a teacher who has smart children in, his, in, in the classroom, and he teaches and they absorb, but one child can't. And that teacher puts in so much effort. And it, 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 it's, it, he has to go down and, and put himself in the, in the student's place and, and understand that maybe the student even has a, a disability and he has to go way down to understand the disability. And then when he finally, when the, when, the, when, the, when the student finally grasps it, the satisfaction of the teacher is even greater than what he taught his smart children, his, his smart pupils. Yeah. So his personal satisfaction is even greater. Right. So you could say on, from, from, the, from, from a divine perspective that when we get it right after challenges that sometimes we put ourselves into most of the time, right? Then, then it's an even greater nachas, if you will. David. Personally, yeah, personally, I understand it. Right. It gives you satisfaction that you overcome and you reach what you reach. Right. It should not diminish anything from being a tzaddik because it's almost the same effort. I mean, I'm with you. I'm with you. To maintain a high level. No, you're right. To maintain a high level also requires okay. consistency and persistence. A hundred percent. Now I have another question. Go ahead. Uh, the whole uh, uh, Torah studies of today is actually based on, now, now I'm asking like I would be a child, okay, uh, what this tells me is that the whole thing is based on a lie, okay, the, the, actually Jacob, he stole something from Esau and his father asked him, are you really Jacob, he said yes and so on, and nobody, nobody, He's like unhappy with this, so I don't. I, I'm sure it is discussed by the sages. And yes. I, I would like to know what. So, what is, David, uh, you're you're asking the million dollar question: How could Jacob have taken the blessings, stolen the blessings, and how are we okay with it? And we're talking about it, and we're celebrating it. What kind of business is this? You're asking an amazing question, and to be to be honest, I mean, it requires a lot of conversation. We, for, we were doing a class now called Secrets of the Bible, where we had already two classes that kind of covered this topic on, on various levels to explain the, the, the deeper understanding of the deception. Uh, your question is discussed in many different places in Jewish scholarship, and there are many different explanations given. So on a, I'm going to go through them very, like a few of them very, very briefly. But to, I don't think they're going to be satisfactory until you get to the deeper explanations. But then it's going to take too long to explain in this context now. But we can, you and I, we can take this offline. But very quickly, very briefly, I'm going to give you answers that you're not going to be satisfied. I know it's not going to be satisfactory, but these are what's written. Number one is when, when Rivka, when Rebecca is pregnant and she goes to seek divine counsel as to why the pregnancy is so difficult. So she's told that the older son will serve the younger. That was the prophecy that she was told. She was told that the elder, Virav Ya'avod Tsair, 
The, the greater one, the, the older one, will serve the, the younger one. And so she knew that. She didn't tell her husband because it was a personal prophecy, and you can't share if it's a personal prophecy, but she felt that she had to organize things to be misader things that the elder should be subservient to the younger, and the younger should have the blessing of dominance. That's one answer. Is it satisfactory? I'll let you decide. Again, until you get to the Kabbalah, it's, uh, every answer has a little bit of a, you know, it's not, it's not perfect. At least, again, who am I to argue with the classic answers, but it's still, you know, is it emotionally satisfactory? I don't know. Intellectually, maybe. Another, another explanation that's given as to why we're okay with this dynamic is because, as the Torah tells us, the same Torah that tells us that Yaakov stole the blessings also tells us that Esav, right, sold his birthright to, to, to Yaakov. So if we go by the text, he sold him the, 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 the firstborn rights. Now, but you're going to say, but fine, so why not tell the father? But the, he still lied. His father said, are you Esav? And he said, yes. And that was a lie. So Rashi already explains. He said, Ani. When he says, who are you? Yaakov says, Ani. It's me. Esav Becharcha. Esav is your firstborn. And I know it's not satisfactory. I get it. Eat shoots and leaves. It's different punctuation. But listen, it's a good question. I'm not dismissing the question. I'm, I'm acknowledging the question. It's a tremendous question. It's the million dollar question. It's explained countless different ways. And for everybody's going to find an explanation that works better for them or maybe works not, not so well for them. Um, and I'm very, very happy to, you know, to, to explore further. But right now, I, there's, there's, a, there's an explanation that I, or, or an angle that I want to share with you, but I, just the time, I can't, I can't do it now because it's going to take too much time. All right, let's, um, I saw that Donna had a question. Donna, go ahead, please. Yeah, I was wondering if the example of Germany was also saying, you know, because they go from the Holocaust then to becoming a country that, you know, is very attentive and sensitive to remembering and to trying to avoid and trying to pay homage. So you could say that. I don't know enough about modern Germany to actually tell you if, if that's a thing. So, the <laughs> so theoretically, yes. Practically, I, I, I hesitate to say for sure and, and, and you know, say absolutely they've done tshuva and everything. I will tell you that I've spoken to people who have gone to Europe and Eastern Europe and have been, like for example, to Poland. And the reports that I've heard is that when you go to Polish villages and you're obviously Jewish, you're still getting some... Some, uh, some, some wary looks. So I, I don't know about, again, I don't know about Germany, but theoretically, yeah, someone who has some, someone or, or an entity or a country that's been, that was in a you know, terrible place, the rebound could be with more sensitivity than before. Could be, again, I, I hesitate to actually paskin and, and rule the concept, the concept. Yeah, the con Bev, go ahead. Yeah, you're, yeah, we can hear you. Oh, um, my question is that Isaac thinks he's giving this blessing to Esau. So is he saying Esau to become a Baal Teshuvah? That's a great question, and I would say probably yes. But it also included both, because there's the and. The and is for the Tzaddik and for the Baal Teshuvah. 
And as David pointed out, we cannot diminish the blessing of the tzaddik because that is a blessing. That almost goes without saying that sometimes we have to say it to emphasize. And that's why I'm, I'm grateful for that. The reminder of don't put down the tzaddik too much because the tzaddik is tremendous. But the, the idea is even the Baal Shuva also has, there's also a tremendous advantage. But I, your point is, well, if it was given, if the intention was to give it to Esau, so was he supposed to be have, so, uh, meant to have both blessings? It's a good question. It kind of like, you know, it's a, it's a mind-bending question, right? It's like, did he know? How would he know? Who was it for? Was it really for, right? But it's, I don't know that I have a definitive answer, but it, it, it worked out where both blessings went into Torah and were able to appreciate the value of perfection and the value of the rebound. Yes, Susan. Um, I don't know if I can word this correctly, but um, Jacob also is the Baltitude here. He has to come back from lying to his father. Yeah, you could say that also, sure. Sure. Although one could argue, so why did he lie in the first place? But uh, yeah, you could always, whatever. Um, uh, yeah, 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 on, on some level, on some level. Yeah. He listened to his mother. He didn't do something bad. He did listen to his mother, right? But then, the, but, the, but then the question, yeah, listen, I'm not, I can't argue with that, especially if my mother's saying it. But I will say, I will say, you know, then you can call into question, what was Rivka thinking? And, and in truth, last week in our, and I, I don't, I'm not like intentionally avoiding the question. I'm just saying it's, we explored this over 90 minutes and we didn't even get, you know, to the, we got as much as we got, but there's certainly more on the topic. But the question's asked on Rebecca, on Rivka. Why didn't she just tell her husband what she was doing? Why do it in a sneaky fashion? And according to Kabbalah, it was, it's, it's a tikkun, it's a repair of the, of the sin of the serpent. The sin of the, um, the Nachash in the Garden of Eden. The Nachash um, mixes good and evil together with deception. And so Yaakov be, has to begin the journey of clarifying, separating between good and evil, which is the service of the Baal Shuvah, having waded into evil and being able to separate that out, also has to begin that journey through a similar path of deception. Again, is it fully satisfactory? I'm acknowledging there's a lot to explore and a lot to discuss and a lot to feel and a lot to question, but these are just some of, some of, the, some of the, the ideas on it. But this is the beauty of the Torah that it tells us you know, as it is. Yeah, that's also true. That's a hundred percent. Yeah. This is the beauty. It doesn't. It doesn't pull any punches, right? David Amelach. It 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 tells you as it is. Now you can always find you can always find a positive way, and maybe that's that's the way we should learn it. And and certainly the Chabad approach is to always look at that, and the Rebbe's approach was always to focus on that. But you're right, the Torah, at least on its surface, is, does not hide, you know, it doesn't cover up. Even the Talmud, look at this, Reish Lakish, he was a, a highway bandit turned scholar. It doesn't, you know, gloss over the past and say, oh, no, all perfect, you know, they, not, nothing to see here. It, it, it just, but it also, listen, I think the takeaway is the power of personal redemption. 
the power to find oneself in a negative place, but to know that there's a way to come back. And also the power to rebound when life throws us a curveball. To, to, to realize the, the power of rebound there as well. All right. Good. Listen, I, there's so much to explore, so much to discuss. But at some point, I don't know. At some point, we, uh, we all, we all uh, have to continue on our own. So it's great to see you all here tonight. Thank you all for being here. Um, it's great to study together. A few quick announcements. So um, what's the quick announcement? Tomorrow is the JLI. Tomorrow night is, um, is Tanya. Normal weekend, etc. Kabbalah and coffee on Sunday. All right, here's, here's what I wanted to announce. So I'm just thinking right now on the fly. Okay, new Talmud course is launching next month. I believe it's December 8th. I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, Tuesday, December 8th, um, a new Talmud course called Decoding Talmud with a brand new teacher. He just moved to Atlanta a few months ago, Rabbi Mendel Jacobson. If you know the name Jacobson, you might know Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. He's a relative, so if you like Rabbi Y.Y., just wait till you have Rabbi Mendel Jacobson who's going to be teaching a Talmud course. Um, it's going to be incredible four-part Talmud course. Check it out on the website, intownjewishacademy.org slash Talmud. Look at how easy I made it for you. Slash Talmud, and I hope that will work. Okay, so that's that. <laughs> I think it works. Um, we also have other courses. All right, we also have um, a jewelry workshop. Donna is going to be doing a pre-Hanukkah jewelry workshop. We have, we're almost sold out. If you still want to get in on it, it's going to be an online workshop. So here's how it works. You sign up RSVP, you'll get a kit in a dreidel, actually. The, the jewelry kit in a dreidel. You make it at home. Live, we have, an, Donna leads this amazing online workshop where she discusses, you know, the inspiration behind it and, this, and, the, and the technique and everything. So you, you actually create the jewelry, a gorgeous piece. And it's, this one is a, a bracelet and earring set. So yeah, you get some some. Yeah, we'll ship it. I know that I can make it happen. I know the people that know the people. Yeah, for sure. So you get the jewelry. You join us online, but because it's like a few days before Hanukkah, we're gonna have an online Hanukkah party where we'll discuss Hanukkah themes and play some Hanukkah music and Hanukkah trivia, and it's gonna be a party. It's gonna be jewelry making Hanukkah party. You can't beat it, my friends. You can't, and if you can, tell me, and we'll have that as also, not instead, but also. I'm kidding. This is going to be so much fun. That's Monday, the 7th of December. So we have the 7th of December is the jewelry workshop. The 8th is the Talmud course. And then things roll on. And just, you know, keep on reading the emails because new stuff comes out every few days. Um, all right. That's it for tonight. I thank you for... Everybody should wish me a happy English birthday. Oh, that's right. That's right. I, I definitely uh, meant to say that. Happy English birthday. Happy English birthday. Yes, happy birthday, Mom. So it's not, it's not yet your Hebrew birthday, but, but we do know, and, and you and I texted about this before, so we do know that the Rebbe also, 
like wish somebody Happy New Year's on January 1st, and when they looked quizzically at why January 1st, if it's not Rosh Hashanah, the Rebbe said, Hashem yispar b'chtob amim, that God counts, there's a verse in Psalms, God counts according to the writings of the nations, which means that there's also some credence to other calendars. So, on that note, happy birthday, Mom, and may you have a, a year filled with good health and happiness and nachas, and it's good to connect like this. It's, uh, it's a nice opportunity. This is this is painless flight. Done. It's much cheaper also than 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 flying out and uh, you know Going each every every night you know for a class or By whatever. Way, I just want to point out that it is November the eighteenth, which is high. Look at that. It's the, it's the high of November. Yes. Not the Ides of March, but the highs yes, of I November. All right. Listen, I'm just breaking it down. All right. Happy birthday. It's great to see you all. And Lila Tov. Take care, everyone. All right. Thank you. Bye, everyone.